0: Second Samuel chapter twelve i 've kind of felt a little guilty about how tough we were on David a, a couple of weeks ago, and I just left him there for two weeks uh, feeling the brunt of my judgment, like you know we, have, we had a sermon on sexual sin, and it got a little tough, like on David, and we just kind of left him there because that 's where Second Samuel chapter eleven left it there it 's like he, he wants us to dwell on this a while and to realize sin has its consequences, and you can 't take that stuff away. but have you ever uh, been really, really, really dirty and you felt the grime and you couldn't get it off for a long time, You're like a church camp and you don't get a real clean at, at church camp, and, and finally you come clean and how good that feels. Or, or maybe you've done something wrong against somebody and you know it and you lose sleep. It agitates you. It gets to your conscience. You can't seem to be satisfied to settle in at all. And you just feel this unsettling, guilty conscience you don't know what you can do about it and finally you come clean with it and it's like a burden lifted as much as you might regret the the loss of face in the sight of other people it just feels good to come clean that's what second samuel chapter 12 is Uh, and so we have left david in the awfulness of his sin for a couple of weeks but that's not the final word i do however We're going to look at a few words for the Christian life, and here's the first one, the word sin. It's a word the world mocks us. They kind of make fun of us like we're trying to make somebody's mistake a little heavier than it really is, so we give it religious weight, and we toss it to them, and we call people sinners and call their actions sin. The church has never defined sin. God defines sin. Sin. Sin is only sin because God is God. And like Romans 1 says, if you can, in your mind, get rid of God, then you get rid of sin too. And that's why a lot of people are trying to get rid of God in our world. If I can get rid of Him, then I can just do whatever I want. There is no such thing as sin, and they're correct. Except for the fact that there is a God, right? And, and the reason that sin is sin is because, because, um, because God exists. His character and His will is the standard for human behavior. I do not, I am not given by God the freedom to label sin whatever I want or label whatever I want sin. The only thing we call sin is what goes against the will and the character of God. He defines it Himself. He exists and He created us after His image. He created us to be like Him. And when we are like Him, we're holy. And when we are unlike Him, we sin. We didn't make this up. God, by His existence, says anything that's not like Him is sin. Well, it's serious too. The problem with us and our world is that because everybody sins, we begin to think, well, it ain't no big deal then. Since everybody sins, no one can judge anyone, or no one can judge a, a, an action that you do because, hey, we're all in this together, and so sin isn't that bad. But sin is very bad, right? We know that because of two things. Sin is very bad because sin separates us from God, Isaiah chapter 59. The moment you sin, no matter what it is, it creates a barrier, a space between you and God where you aren't, right with God you have something between you and him and it will disrupt the peace and it will disrupt your life and so sin separates you from God and the second thing is that's why God says you're defiled when you sin you're not right with me you're out of step with your creator and the second thing is that the wages of sin is death how serious is God about sin well every sin has a death penalty attached to it How serious is that? That's pretty serious. We don't put death penalty on everything. We put death penalty on on the heaviest of crimes. God puts the death penalty on every sin. That's how bad sin is. Sin is a bad deal, even for Christians, and we need to acknowledge this. We don't need to go light on sin as a church. Sin is no casual, flippant uh, thing that's no big deal. It is a big deal, right? And that's what we learned about David. And for a year, he lived with this sin unaddressed. But here's the beauty of God. God, in his grace, gave us the definition of sin in Scripture. He defined it for us and told us what it was. But also, he says, I'm going to help you to never have to face that ultimate death. I'm going to help you avoid that penalty and take care of your sin. But the first step is to become conscious of it. Here's the interesting thing. do want you look at Psalm 19 with me. This is something Paul Wallace and I, again, you think we have these conversations all the time and disagree. This is one we agree on. Kind of makes it boring, doesn't it? You agree. Who can discern their own errors Forgive my hidden faults. Do you have hidden sins you don't even know? Are there sins you commit you don't even know you've committed them? How many say you do? What's the psalm mean if you don't, right? What's the psalm mean? Who can even discern the errors they make? Forgive my hidden faults. God, forgive me for the sins that I have in my life I do not even know are there. It's a huge blind spot. Now, truth is you do. Just ask your wife. No, no, just ask, you know, you can ask around, but but even other people don't know. There are sins about you that don't register with you as you go through the day. You don't think about them. You commit them and don't even think about Don't even realize they're there. Now, you don't have to become conscious of every sin. At the end of your day, you God, forgive me. If I know there have been things that I've done today. I'm sure there are things I've done today. I'm not even aware, aware that have transgressed your law. In my mind, in my hands, in my body, whatever, I've got some things I didn't even realize. That's a legitimate prayer, y'all. A legitimate prayer. Then there are things that you know that you catch. I don't know what you call these. Inadvertent sins is what they call them in the NIV. Inadvertent, which means you didn't mean to do them. You just slipped up and did them. And then there's a third category. Look at this, verse 13. Keep your servant also from Willful sins. You know what a willful sin is? An intentional sin. I knew it. I knew it when I did it. It's a willful sin. Sometimes you're swayed by the passions of the moment or in your anger you don't think and you run through a stop sign that normally you would stop yourself. That can be a willful sin. But there's also what is called in the NIV, an intentional sin, and in the Old Testament, there wasn't even a sacrifice for them. How weird is that? This is the sin where you're walking into something you know it's wrong. You know when the day started, it's wrong. But you knew it was coming, and you didn't stop it, and you just walked right into it. You walk right into this sin willfully. I want to do this. I want to do this so bad, I'm going to do it. I've planned it all day, and here it is. And God says, you can't make sacrifices in the Old Testament for that. And I look around the Old Testament trying to find what do you do for that, and there's nothing. Nothing. I'm mystified by that. I'm not sure. is that exist in the New Testament? Well, listen to Hebrews chapter 10. I think I may be jumping here, but Hebrews 10. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, what's it say? No sacrifice for sins is left. There isn't a sacrifice for that. Let me ask you a question. Be honest. How many of you have committed deliberate sin? You are in trouble. Let me back up and let the fire come now, right? There is no sacrifice for sin left. That's bizarre. In the Old Testament, it kind of left it there. And you go looking, you got the Leviticus, you know, all the details of all those sacrifices that you can make, all for a sin that you realize you commit. You go up to the priest, and you tell him, this is what I did, didn't mean to. And, and he pronounces forgiveness over you after the sacrifice. But when it says deliberate sin, there, there's nothing there. There's nothing for you. In the New Testament, it looks like there's nothing for you. What in the world do we do about this? Even Psalm 19, when it mentioned it a minute ago, it doesn't say, forgive me. It says, keep me from deliberate sin. It's like there's no sacrifice. We're just all doomed. Well, I don't think so. There's an explanation I have, I think, but we're going to see it a little bit in this chapter. But here's what happens. A deliberate sin that you still have this deliberate feeling about You won't ask forgiveness for it because you wanted it. You don't regret it. You don't confess it. You don't ask for forgiveness for it because you're not sorry. You might even convince yourself over time it wasn't even really a sin. Many people do this. There are sins in our world right now that people are declaring okay because their experience with it is, it's just so much part of my character, I don't think it's sin. And so they redefine it. I won't tell you what some of those sins are. You know what they are. You hear them. And then there are some that maybe people wish they could feel sorry for, but they just don't. And I think this is what Scripture says. There is no sin you can't be forgiven of except the one you won't confess. And God can't do anything about that, can He? If you will not Break your heart, because as Paul, as Paul, as David says later in Psalm 51, the sacrifice of God for this is a broken and contrite heart. Something has to break you. Something has to break that hardened heart, that resolve. Here is how intentional sin gets forgiven. God comes after you to soften your heart and change your mind about that sin. Now, obviously, at the moment you intended it, a month later, maybe you still intended it. But sometime later, you reach an awareness in your heart and you reach a regret. You reach the softness of heart that makes you look back on that moment and say, I really do regret it now. I didn't then, but I do now. It breaks my heart. I did that. God has to come after you and do that. And that's where David is in 2 Samuel chapter 12. God had said, don't do that about murder, stealing, and adultery. But David did that. We have two definitions. God said, you don't do this. David said, I did do this, and I don't regret it. And they're at odds with each other. And for a year, they lived in that stalemate. They lived in that tension. And I can only, I don't know that I can answer this assuredly, but all I can say is for a year, David's forgiveness was held in suspension. He was not forgiven of this sin. It was held against him that entire time. I don't know what would have happened if he died in that time. We think about that. I think about that. What would have happened if in the hardened heart season of his life for just that time, if something would have happened, what would have spiritually taken place on David's account? I don't know. I often wonder that. I wonder that about people. But David does come around to it. In Psalm 51, verse 4, I think I have that on the screen, I hope. I'm jumping around here, Paul, so I don't know. Yeah, against you and you only, I don't understand this line, and don't try to explain it because I don't understand it either, and I've not found a good explanation. Against you and you only have I sinned? It's not true. I don't know other thing, anything to tell you other than David's wrong. It wasn't just against God, was it? You got Bathsheba over there. You've got Uriah over there. You've got all those people who died when he killed Uriah. You've got all those people over there that he sinned against. But maybe he's saying primarily, first of all, I sinned against you. But here's the point in the second part of this verse. You are right in your verdict. A year later, after confronted by Nathan, which we're going to read here in a minute, a year later, he finally reaches this point. I was wrong. God was right. And that's what confession is. In confession, I say, God is right, and I am wrong, and my heart is broken. It's one thing to admit that it's another thing to admit that and care right I say I believe it in my heart and I say it with my lips what I did was against God's law God's right I'm wrong speak the same thing that's what confess means so here's David the Lord sent Nathan to David chapter 12 verse 1 He came to him and told him this powerful story. It's almost like Nathan was saying, you know, I'm struggling with this case, David. I'm struggling with this case that came up to me, and I want you to help me to analyze it and see what the right thing is. Was this a real case? It could have been. We don't know. But he tells this as a story. There were two men in a certain city, a rich man and a poor man. The rich man had a bunch of flocks and herds. He had animals everywhere. The poor man only had one, and he treated this treated this ewe lamb like his own child, brought him up and grew up with him and his children, used to eat at his table, isn't that crazy, and, and, and lay in his arms and sleep with him like a daughter, right? Now there came a traveler to the rich man. The rich man with many flocks and many animals, he could have slaughtered any one of them and never known any difference, but the rich man decided he has a friend and he wants to impress him with a meal, but he doesn't really want to absorb the cost of this meal, Hospitality can be expensive. So he goes across to his poor neighbor, rips that ewe lamb out of his arms, slaughters it, and serves it in a meal for his friend. David is furious. David is over the top angry. This gets to him. The reason is his nerves were already raw. God was working on him. We see in Psalm 51, God was working on him that whole year to move him towards softening that heart. But God was doing that. And so when this case comes up, it sounds so familiar and he's so angry with himself for being fooled by his sin that when someone else's case sounds eerily similar to his own, he reacts with this horrendous anger and he judges himself This guy should die, but at least give four times, right? Replace the lamb fourfold because of this. And he had no compassion for that rich man. And then, of course, you know what Nathan does. Nathan looks at him, holds up a mirror and says, You are the rich man. And he explains. I anointed you king over Israel. Delivered you out of the hand of Saul, which was quite a task that took years. I gave you of your master's house, your master's wives, and to your arms gave you the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And if that weren't enough, I would have added to you much more. I would have, added, I would have given you whatever you asked. Now, so why have you despised the word of the Lord? You despise me when you go after another man's spouse. And you did evil in my sight. You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword. You've taken his wife to be your wife. You've killed him with a sword of the Ammonites. Now the sword will never depart from your house. Your family is going to be tormented with violence all because of this lapse, David. But that's not all. Verse eleven. Thus says the Lord: Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. I will take your wives from your eyes and give them to your neighbor. Right? And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the in, the, in broad daylight. And you you did it secretly. You did this secretly, David. You did it secretly. But I am going to do all this in front of all of Israel, in the open sun. Wow. He really deserved death, didn't he? David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Finally, I happen to believe as a king he was stuck on what to do to make this right. How does a king make this right? Now Nathan says, it's out, the Lord has re- revealed you. And David says, I have sinned. And there's his confession. This is what makes David different from Saul. Saul. Saul could never say that. David does immediately upon the finger pointed. Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. Confession is this willingness to say, God, you're right, because God was telling him he had despised him, he had done evil, he'd done wicked, he'd broken the law of God, and David for a year was saying, no, 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 but now he's saying, yes, I did. A year later, now he's ready. His heart has softened. What was David, what was God doing in all this? I admire the courage of Nathan. A Nathan, a man who has to go up to the king and somehow get him to see his sin, and David could have easily killed him. Instead, Nathan finds this creative way to come in the back door. We need to find this with each other. I hope, let's see the next screen. I don't know if I've put these all on at the same time. Okay, so repentance, that's another word, right? That has to be started by confession. Confession triggers this. Repentance is when I'm not going to do this anymore. Repentance is when I'm making a change of turn. Now on the next screen. This is where I want it. This is what God uses to soften our hearts. And I hope you've got a lot of this in your life that you're letting work. Because every one of us has sin in our life, right? We have sin we need to deal with. We need to make repentance constantly. Repentance is not just the step of the five steps of salvation that get us in the kingdom. Repentance is a daily process for Christians. We look at our lives every day getting a little closer to God. And confession is, too, it doesn't have to be to a priest, but it has to be to God where we actually say, God, this is something I did today. I know that's not what you want. You're right and I'm wrong. And God will repair the fence the moment you say that, right? But what is God doing? What is God doing to soften your heart when it's so hard? And Here's the things he does. He uses scripture. You remember what scripture is useful for? All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for rebuking, correcting, and training, instruction in righteousness. You know Hebrews chapter 4 where it says the the Word of God is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. It reaches into your life and can penetrate between what? the, The thoughts and intents of the heart. While you're reading Scripture, Scripture is reading you and it's trying to convict you of further sin or just how to pursue righteousness more fully. When you read Scripture, don't just read it historically. Read it transformatively. What are you telling me, God, because certain passages in your life should be convicting. He uses the Holy Spirit. John chapter 14, 15, 16. The Spirit's going to come to convict the world of sin, and he still convicts. The Holy Spirit in you is to convict you. It's to break that hardened heart and cause you to, for, to, to, to uh, confess and repent. Discipline. Hebrews chapter 12, endure hardship as discipline. Every difficulty of your life is a time for you to take inventory and wonder how I could be closer to God. This includes covid Luke chapter 13, the tower fell. Luke chapter 13, you know, Pilate killed all those people, mixed their blood with the, the sacrifices they were making. What should we do? Were those people, no, 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 no. This is just a time, this is a time for you to repent. God in his kindness and his, just and his grace, Romans chapter two, you know what God's kindness toward you is for? To get you to repent. You know what his severity is for? To get you to repent. Discipline. Every hardship of your life is to move you closer to God, to get you to repent and move closer. And then there's special people. Do you have a Nathan? Do you have a Nathan in your life who has the guts to come up to you and share with you a perspective on your life you may not like? What I love about what Nathan does is he doesn't slam in the front door. He doesn't come in like a bunch of, like, like a bunch of people kicking in the door saying, you're a terrible person. No, he comes in the back door. Before David even realized what happens, he's in his house. And he's given him the right to correct him. I love that David has some people in his life. Do you? Do you have people in your life who when they see something amiss, they can come to you and you'll listen? Because that's one of God's main tools of softening your heart. David does. Nathan comes. David does listen to him. In his tact, he's able to have this story. And when David finally confesses, he doesn't say, well, you know, I let things get out of hand. I made a poor decision. I had a flaw in my personality, a glitch in my my behavior. No, he says it's a sin. It's an offense against God. It separates me from him. I'm worthy of death. And when you actually say it, when you are actually willing to say, I have sinned, God gives you an open door to completely exonerate yourself of the consequences spiritually. And so, as soon as he says, I've sinned, notice what Nathan said. The Lord has put away your sin. You have confessed And God put away your sin. You will not die. It's a sweet thing. David has put it off. Was it embarrassment? Was it shame? Was it surprise? I don't know what caused David to go so long. I don't know what makes us go so long. Because here's the thing. The door comes open the moment you confess. It's not karma. Now you can start paying it back. No, that's not what God does. It's not karma. There is no karma. It's called grace. The moment you confess and repent and turn away from it, God says, it's gone. Now, there's different words he uses. Here's some of them. He heals you. He forgets your sin. He stomps it under his feet. He throws it behind his back into the depths of the ocean. He wipes it away. He cleanses it away. He washes it off. He blots it out of our book, and the transgression is gone. He erases it. He separates it from us as far as the east is from the west. He bears it for us. He covers it over. God is more than eager to get rid of the barrier between him and us. He doesn't like it any more than you do, but until you confess and repent, he can't move it. You trigger movement of that barrier by God when you confess. So how important is repentance? The New Testament describes repentance as a gift from God, and it is. We know what God will do when we repent and confess. We know the condition we will attain if we confess and we repent. And we know that it makes us feel dirty and distanced from God. So the question becomes, why don't we repent more? That separation is removed and you feel once again this relationship with God, nothing barrier, no barrier between you and him. And that cleanliness is restored and you're like clean all over again. Forgiveness. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, while David has done an awful thing and he lives a long time in rebellion against it, he comes clean. This is a deliberate, sin. And the way it's forgiven is the same way as an inadvertent sin. But getting your heart ready to be softened enough to recognize your sin, to say God's right and you're wrong, and to repent of your ways, that's tough. It took David months to reach it. We don't ever have to come before a priest preacher included, the New Testament era, the great covenant is that we have a Savior who sacrificed once for all his blood and removes all that. You no longer need a priest, man or woman. No one needs a priest. You can go straight into the presence of God and say, God, you were right and I was wrong. And your confession doesn't need to be made public at all unless it involves other people. And that segment of your sin needs to be taken care of, too. This is something we need to practice on a daily basis so that our hearts don't get hard because there is a possible way. This is controversial in the religious world, but not to me. There's a possible way where a person who's right with God, has the sacrifice of Christ applied to them, they commit a sin, they reach a hardened heart state where they no longer confess before God, their forgiveness is stunted, there's no longer a flow of forgiveness from God, and they suspend their salvation for the sake of a sin they love. That happens. That happens, and that's why Hebrews talks so much about it. It's not a a condition, when you read Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10, it's not a condition for you to look at somebody and say, well, this, this is a person who's beyond forgiveness. You never have the ability to announce that. The only reason God tells us this is so that you will know when you look in the mirror, it is possible, church, for spiritual Christian people to harden their hearts against God and sabotage their salvation. Don't Go there. Confess your sin. Repent regularly. And feel the wonderful peace and cleanliness of restored forgiveness. Relationship with God. You need to sing that song. We sing it sometimes, Break My Heart, Dear Lord. If a person after God's own heart, David can reach a point where he has a hardened heart for a year. Any one of us could do that. And so he sings a song, and I should have arranged for this. That's one of the newer ones, at least it's on that CD that we've been on. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, O Lord. if we would learn to live that way. Tonight, I'm just, I've just told you, you don't need to ever come up here and confess for the sake of your repentance and your forgiveness. By saying that you would have to would make us very Catholic. It would make us a bunch of priests for each other. You are your own priest. You can do this on your own, but sometimes we make this available, what we're gonna do right now, we make this available not for your relationship before God to be right. You can do that yourself. But sometimes people need to see other people and say it to other people and get clean because there's some other relationships they've disturbed and sinned in the process of this. This is a convenient time for you to be able to come clean in front of all these people. And a lot of times, people just do it because i got to get it off my conscience. It's bothered me so long. And I want to see God's face and the face of God's people as they show me the forgiveness in their faces. Just as David could finally be forgiven of his deliberate sin, so can you. But you must confess and repent of your sin. And God is faithful and just and will forgive and live with as soft a heart as you possibly can to protect you from ever doing that again. This evening, maybe you're confessing already, right there where you are, and that's good enough. Maybe you need the prayers of this church. Maybe you've never responded to God before and named Jesus as your savior, the one who shed his blood for you. Uh, in order for you to have that access, and you don't even have it at all. And this evening you have a chance to access that through the waters of baptism upon your confession. Whatever is your spiritual need tonight, make it known as we stand and as we sing to encourage you.